As soon as Adoni Zedek, the Lord of Righteousness, King of Jerusalem, might want to underline that. It is the first time we see Jerusalem referenced in your Bible. As soon as Adoni Zedek, King of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, now the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors. So Adoni Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Yarmuth, to Yaphia, king of Lachish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Yarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. In chapter 9, the first two verses, to remind you of the context here, the kings of the land of Canaan made an alliance together. Because Joshua and, and the Israelites had crossed the Jordan River in miraculous fashion, marched around Jericho seven times, the walls had collapsed, they had burned the city to the ground, you know the story, and everyone was terrified. Rahab said that their hearts were like water about these Israelites. But we read in chapter 7 that when they went to battle I, the Lord had them lose in a humiliating way because a man named Achan had kept some of the treasures of Jericho, which he was not supposed to do. And so they handled that situation and they ended up winning the battle at Ai. But as we talked about last time, the people now realized that Israel was vulnerable. They could lose. And so they got this alliance together. But we discussed last time how the Gibeonites, who were sort of next on the menu as far as where Joshua was going, decided instead of fighting to make an alliance with Joshua through deception, uh, that Joshua should not have done it, but it happened. And the Lord is going to hold them to it as we studied last time. Well, this coalition of kings sees what Gibeon does, and the king of Jerusalem, Adoni Zedek, makes them the first target of this alliance. He gathers four Amorite kings, and you can still see the trepidation that is there surrounding Israel. Okay, Gibeon is a mighty city, but they don't walk around cities and the walls fall down. So let's start with them, and then we can move on from there. It also could have been a test of Israel's loyalty because everyone presumably would have known how distressed the people of Israel were when they realized what they had done. So maybe they thought this can be a way to strike a moral blow against the Israelites. And in any case, even though Joshua had, had erred by making an alliance with Gibeon, it was the first, it says, great city that Israel had overcome. We think of Jericho as a great city. It was a fortified city. It did have st strong, tall walls, but it was not a particularly large or important city at the time. Neither was I. In fact, it was so small that the people didn't even want to send out the whole army to be bothered to fight against I. But Gibeon is another matter entirely. So in the, the grand scheme of things, Israel has taken possession of its first great city. And as we're going through this, from the, the beginning of the Pentateuch and, and now to Joshua, the promised land represents for the Christian, although of course the story is true, don't get me wrong, it represents the abundant life that is available for a Christian. Everything that God has planned for you, your destiny, it can be used to represent heaven, sure, John Bunyan did that, I'm not going to criticize him to be sure, but if you look at the Exodus coming out of Egypt as being delivered from sin, coming to Mount Sinai and meeting God and receiving his law, similar to how the Holy Spirit came in the book of Acts, wandering through the wilderness as this, this in-between place. The promised land is where God wants you to be, the abundant, victorious life that the New Testament talks about so much. Your destiny that God has for you. Ephesians 2.10 says that God has works prepared beforehand that we should walk in. 1 Corinthians 7.17 says that each one of us has a life to which God has called and assigned to us. That's the promised land. And Joshua, the book, reminds us that Canaan is contested. The devil, on the other hand, desires to ruin everything that God wants to give you. We are Bible-believing Christians. We are not deceived into thinking that the devil is just a figment of our imagination. There is a real, malevolent, evil, unseen, personal force 
arrayed against you and the purposes of God for your life. Jesus said in John 10.10, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Those are the two choices, you might say. That's what Satan is trying to do. That's what God is trying to do. You ever feel fought over in your life? Paul kind of describes that in Romans 7 a little bit. He's like, I've got this list of things that I want to do, and I don't do them. I've got this list of stuff I don't want to do, and I can't stop doing it. And you almost feel like you're being pulled back and forth, because in a way, you are. The, the devil is trying to get you to sin and to wreck your life. Jesus is trying to restore and redeem your life and, and give it to you in abundance. And that's the struggle. That's the fight that Joshua can represent for us. And you may have noticed when you start to make real progress in your Christian life, when you really start to feel like you're getting this now, you're starting to advance and move forward, you capture a great city, maybe a relationship is restored, or a sin seems to fall by the wayside, a great crisis in your life you pass through. Maybe you didn't do everything right, but you're through it now. And you start to realize, wow, God is real, Jesus loves me, and, and this, is, this is my life now. That is when you catch the attention of your adversary. Isn't that the case? The minute things start to go well in your Christian life, and especially when you get a major victory, that's when somebody gets sick. That's when the finances start to dry up. You've been out of church for years, and you've not had a problem paying any of your bills. You start coming back to church, six months later, all of a sudden, you really need those Sunday hours that you never used before. You think that's a coincidence? You know, my children are just perfect little angels, but the minute we get in the car to go to church, it's like they get demon-possessed. <laughs> you think that's an accident? You know what Wednesday nights are like in a pastor's house, usually? You, you can't take anything. I, one of the tongue-in-cheek pieces of advice I give to couples in premarital is I say, when you start having children in the third trimester of pregnancy, nothing counts. You've just got to let it go because you're going to say, oh, what, is that too much for you guys? You've, you've never experienced this. You're going to say things you don't mean. She's going to say things she doesn't mean. You guys are going to have ups and downs. You just got to let that one go and say we love each other and it's going to be okay. Right? That's sort of what it's like on Wednesday nights when a pastor's getting ready for church. It's like we know we weren't ourselves that night because the devil is trying to ruin things. Your relationships start to grow tense. Oh, maybe you and your father finally reconnected, but now it's like you and your wife just can't talk to each other anymore. Or your, your child becomes, to re becomes rebellious. It's like clockwork. If I go on a missions trip, an appliance is going to break. Catelyn can tell you. She can testify. <laughs> I, w I remember there's one year, I think I went on four or five mission trips that year, and every single time, like the hot water heater went out, the fence fell down, the dishwasher stopped working, the kids got strep. It, it's just, it happens every time, and now we just laugh about it. And that's the trick to recognize that this is spiritual opposition to spiritual success. And because that attack is spiritual, your response must be spiritual also. Ephesians 6.12 says, We wrestle not against flesh and blood. I've heard people stop halfway through that verse before. The struggle is really about just letting things go and just not caring. No, that's what Buddhists think. What Christians believe is we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Demons, to put it in a word. That's what we wrestle against. It's not that you don't wrestle. You're right that you're wrestling. You're just, you're mistaken and you're target very often. So if you can start to identify the devices of your enemy, that what this crisis that we're going through is not just life happening. It is something that is deliberately being inflicted upon me in order to stop my advance in my spiritual life. If you can recognize that, then you will have victory. But if you cannot identify the devices of your enemy, you'll start to misallocate resources, and you'll start to suffer defeats. And the worst part of it is, you might start to blame God. And that's no good. So let's see what happens in this story. Verse 6. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal. Gilgal seems to be base camp in the promised land, that all of their expeditions go out from Gilgal, where the women and children, all of their possessions would have stayed. So they're at Gilgal. They said, do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us, 
for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon, and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Haron, and struck them as far as Azekah and Makedah. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Haron, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. So they're at Gilgal. Joshua hears the call from Gibeon and orders the men to answer it. I bet there was a pit in Joshua's stomach as they got ready for this. He's thinking this is exactly the kind of thing we did not want to get involved in. Because we were this mobile army, we really didn't have any strong points. We had the advantage of being this seemingly miraculous, invincible force. But now we've, we're tricked into making this alliance. And now we've got to go and not conquer a city, but to defend a city for somebody else. I bet you as they were marching or, or getting ready to march, he's thinking, is God going to bless us in this battle or not? We have this illicit alliance. We, we cannot break this vow that we have made before the Lord, this covenant that we've made. And in case you thought they could, when Saul tried to do this later, God would send a plague on the children of Israel for that. The Lord takes your agreements seriously. So as they get ready to march, verse 8, the Lord reassures Joshua. And I, I can't imagine how relieved he must have felt. We're going to go fight for these people if we lose another battle, I, I don't know if the people are going to hold together. It was hard enough getting them to cross the river in the first place. We spent 40 years in the desert because we wouldn't go forward. What happens if we lose today? The Lord shows up and says, don't worry about it, Joshua. I'm with you. You're going to smite these people. They're, you're not even going to have one guy taking a last stand. No heroes in this fight. They're all going to lose. So Joshua, in a burst of confidence, says, all right. Then let's go. What are we waiting for? And there's a forced march all through the night to Beth Haron, to this ascent. And it says, God threw them into a panic. So imagine that the night is ending. They have besieged the city of Gibeon. Sieges could take a long time. They could take years. So you settle in. You set up camp. You start planning the engineering attacks. How are we going to dig under the wall? Are we going to build siege mounds and move forward? Do we have towers? What, what are we going to do? The morning comes. Israel is days away. We'll know if, before they get here. And up over this hill comes this Israelite army and Joshua at the head with the, with the rising of the sun. Now, at that point, they might have thought, okay, they can lose. Let's have an alliance. But they still remembered who they were dealing with. And their hearts became like water and they fled down this ascent. The Lord threw them into a panic. God intensified those feelings of fear. And you get the picture. They're running down this ascent called Beth Haron. And as they're running down, the Lord starts to send large hailstones to crush the armies. Jaron and Jacob and I went backpacking last year and we, we did a, had a couple of really gnarly stretches on this hill. There's one part you're doing the switchbacks going down and it was beautiful, but it was un, untouched wilderness where we were. And the road was kind of hard to find and the rocks were really slippery and we're falling over backwards and trying not to fall off the cliff. And just thinking if, if we were to fall, this would not be a pleasant experience. Now they're having, number one, to run down the hill like that. And now God starts to throw hailstones down on them and they're getting crushed as they run which obliterated these Amorite armies. Nobody had more kills than Yahweh on that day. <laughs> God had promised them in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 4, the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you. I know we often think of Jesus as the tender carpenter. He was that. But the Lord is also a man of war, the Bible says. Nobody stands against the Lord. You don't believe me, we're getting to Revelation 19 in a few weeks on Sunday mornings. We'll cure that attitude real fast. 
2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 4. It says, Though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. You say, well, I, I know that there's spiritual things, but this is the real world and we've got to live in it. Yeah, but that's not how we fight. We do not wage war according to the flesh. Verse 4, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Say, well, we need to get some weapons. You've already got weapons. And the ones you've got have power to destroy strongholds. What kind of power? Divine power. Which is why, and I'm not going to go off on a little tangent here, I'm fine with people wanting to organize Christians to vote or demonstrate or protest. That's fine. But the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. If you're not pairing those things with prayer meetings, if you're not pairing those things with a repentant heart, that we're going to walk in obedience before the Lord, then you're, you're fighting where you're weak. Why not fight where you're strong? Not only strong, unstoppable. Where you had divine power to pull down strongholds. And you can even apply this to your own life or your family or even our own church here. The battle is not physical. And because these battles are spiritual, that should encourage you. Because you've got almighty God on your side. Some people are more afraid of the devil than they are of God. Oh, but the devil is real spooky and scary. Yeah, he does that to make you afraid. Because if your power comes from faith, and he can undermine your faith with fear, you might not have as much faith when you have to stand against him. That's why the Bible says the beginning of wisdom and knowledge is to fear who? God. Fear God first. My God can beat up your God. My God can kill your army without me swinging a sword. There's going to be a few times where that happens in the Bible. Or they show up and all the armies are dead. Okay, I guess we'll take all their stuff and go home rich. Not a bad payday. Amen. Almighty God is on your side. But here's the thing. We know that. You all know that. You know that God is with you. But when you have failed, say, yeah, yeah, oh, that's true. But Tyler, you don't know. I've been, I've been in sin. I made the, the wrong choice. I made a bad decision. I shouldn't even be here. I shouldn't be with these people. I shouldn't be in this state. God called me and told me to do this, and I didn't. So God's not going to be with me. It's kind of how Joshua might have felt. But you know, it is in moments like these when God delights to show himself strong. God loves to come through for you when you really don't deserve it. Have you noticed that God does that? That when you've, you've really messed up and you know it, and you're like, I don't even know if I want to pray because I know, I know what I deserve, right? Well, that's when God likes to come through. Why does he do that? He wants us to repent. He wants us to walk in obedience. That's all true. But why does God like to show himself strong when we done messed up? So that your faith for victory will not rest in your works, but in the grace of God. Because if you start to think that things will go well for me when I do well, and if I do poorly, things will go poorly, that's when you're starting to reinvent a different kind of God than what the Bible reveals to us. That's when you're reinventing the doctrine of karma. That, well, every action has an opposite and equal reaction. That's you know, God's just, you know, God helps those who help themselves. It's a, God likes to come in and say, watch this. Even though y'all were stronger than all those armies, you can't throw hailstones down. Only I can do that. Probably the first instance of artillery in the history of warfare here. God loves to do that. His grace is greater than your sin. Isn't that great? I don't care what you've done. God's grace is greater. We know people that have done horrific things that have come to salvation in Christ. I got witch doctor friends in Nepal that are pastors now. You know the stories of Paul, who was a persecutor of the church. We've read of gangsters getting saved. We've read of, of uh, communists coming to the Lord Jesus and stopping what they're doing at the camps. We've read of Nazis coming to the Lord Jesus and finding forgiveness. You think your sin is so great, the blood of Jesus can't wash it away? What makes you so special? <laughs> the blood from Emmanuel's veins washes away every sin. But Lord, you don't know what I've done. He says, what? There's nothing on the list. I nailed it to the cross. And all that blood came down, and I can't read this anymore. You teach that, people are going to think that they can just do whatever they want. Yeah, some people will. They're wrong. 
But I found that a lot more people have a hard time accepting that God loves them and he's with them and he's on their side than I have encountered people who are going to walk in flagrant sin and say grace. Jesus loves you. God knew who you were. Psalm 103 verse 14 says, God knows your frame. He knows how you were raised. He knew what you went through. He knows what your mental issues are. He knows the circumstances of your life. He gets it. It says, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. If you start making your failures points of recommitment and repentance to the Lord, you just wait and see what the Lord is going to do. You're going to get the devil telling his demons, would you stop tempting him? Every time he sins, he falls down on his face and prays, and he gets closer to Jesus, and it's like one step forward and two steps back for us. Leave off. Israel wasn't even in the right in this one. And God goes, but I still chose you, and that's what matters more than anything else, right? Well, believe it or not, hailstones from heaven are not even the cool part of this story. Verses 12 through 15. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said, in the sight of Israel, no secret prayers here. Sun, stand still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Aijalon. And the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jasher? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. This may be, aside of course from the incarnation, the resurrection, the most incredible miracle in the Bible. The sun stood still and the moon stopped. Let's say that again. The sun stood still and the moon stopped. Do you like how the writer here, probably Joshua, says, if you don't believe me, go read the book of Jasher. We don't have that one. It is actually referenced also in 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 18, about the song that David wrote uh, to lament for Jonathan and Saul. So some people say this would have been written later. We've already talked about the writing of the book, that there's no reason it could not have been updated. You see things written like, until this day. We believe Joshua wrote the core of it, but you see little details like that, that remind us this was being used as scripture from its inception. There are even those who have claimed to have confirmed this historically in other cultures as well, that there are Central American Indian cultures that have legends of a day when the sun stopped, or there are uh, India and China, places like that, that have that same story. I've not been able to confirm that. Read some guys that took it pretty seriously and some who didn't. I don't need that, although it would be cool to find it. I just need the scripture. The sun stood still and the moon stopped. However, we're going to take a little detour here before we come back to the, the happy part. This miracle is dismissed by most Bible scholars, even the ones who ought to know better. Even guys like Francis Schaeffer, who is a rock star of the Christian faith, come to us and they go, oh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know about this one. I don't know exactly what this is supposed to mean. When people say that, what they mean is, I know what it means, and I don't like it. This happens all the time in Scripture. The Red Sea, for example. You maybe have seen in, in more recent books, people refer to it as the Reed Sea. What people say for the Reed Sea is they say, well, the, the word yam suf in Hebrew, yam means sea, suf means reeds, uh, that, that means that God parted the marshy part up in the northern part of Egypt, not the actual Red Sea itself. They go, oh, it's still, still a miracle, which makes you wonder, why do you even bother describing it differently? The, every other place you see the words Yam Suf in the Old Testament, it's talking about the Red Sea. And the Greek translation that they use for that passage and all the Greek maps that we have refer to it as the Red Sea. So I really have an impatience with that. Because it's people, they're not even trying to deny the miracle. They're just trying to minimize it to impress atheists. What about in... When Ahaz asked for a sign from the prophet Isaiah and the sundial moved back an hour. 
Well, we don't know what happened, but God apparently made it seem like the, the, the sun went back an hour. We know that that's impossible. Again, it's like, what are you, what are you, who are you trying to impress here? Even all the way down to Jesus' miracles. I really don't like this one. It says that Jesus cast out a demon. Now we know that most mental illness uh, that used to be ascribed to demons, uh, that they just were ignorant, and Jesus uh, pretended to cast out demons instead of just, just healing their minds. Which that's, you're really in trouble when you start down that path, my friend. You say, because then what's, what's the implication there? I don't believe in angels. I don't believe in demons. All right. What about what Ephesians 6 says? Well, it's just, it's just poetry. It's just inspirational literature. You, that's a, it's a hop, skip, and a jump to denying things then like the inspiration of Scripture, the virgin birth, the incarnation, and the resurrection itself. In this case, people say, well, this word for stand still is the Hebrew word damam. What does it mean? It means stand still. <laughs> it's one of those things. It's like there's no... I'm not going to get into that piece of it, but there are ways you do word studies. When you do a word study in, in any language, you say, okay, here's what it is in English. You go back and look at the or Hebrew or the Greek or whatever it might be, and you say, okay, is there any nuance of the original language that maybe the English doesn't catch to help us understand it? If you're bilingual, speak more than one language, you know that sometimes it takes, uh, you, you can't quite directly translate something. So this is why we do this, to make sure that we're reading it right. And one of the things you're never supposed to do when you're doing a word study, is to look at the list of five possible meanings and pick the one that you like. You have to pick the one that fits the contest. Real quick, think to yourself, how many uses of the word run can you think of? I did this in, in a Greek class I used to teach. One time we came up with, I think, 31 uses of the word run. Say, so, okay, the president is running for office. In ancient America, literally, it says they ran for office. There would be a foot race to see who got to be president. Well, that's what run means. It doesn't, matter. It doesn't mean that in this context. Same deal here. It means stand still. And in some places, it can be used metaphorically. But when you have all this explanatory language where it says the sun stopped and did not set, what else do you think it means? Why do you think in verse 14, he goes out of his way to say, there's never been anything like this. Some people think that Christians believe that miracles just happen, like we live in some magical fantasy universe. Every now and then, like things just pop into existence. We know that miracles are special. That's why we write them down. Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Christians believe people just rise from the dead. No, they don't. That's why this one is a really important one. You think the sun can just stop? No, that's why it was worth writing down. Rewriting scripture like this only comes when people do not truly believe what it says and they want out. The worst instance of this comes from people that want to rewrite the creation story in order to appease the scoffers that 2 Peter 3 warns us about. That's the new tactic now, is people say, well, we need to reinterpret Genesis chapter 1. And it's really not saying that God made the world in six days. It's just using that as a metaphor for whatever he actually did. Why do people say that? There's no good reason in the text. They just kind of say, well, it's already been proven. Completely taking men like Dr. Baumgartner and Dr. Ross and throwing all their work under the bus. Those are the guys that we interviewed for the podcast, by the way, creation scientists, both of them. People will say when they read this story, but listen, if the sun stopped, that means that the earth would have had to stop in its rotation. And if that happens, all people are going to go flying off into space. As if God can't do both of those things at the same time. The sun doesn't stop. The earth stops rotating. Well, what difference does it make? God stopped it. How did it work it out? We can't figure this out. You don't have to. It's supposed to be miraculous and astonishing and make you go, whoa. How did God do that? Well, I can't figure out how that miracle makes sense. So I can't, I'm not going to deal with it. It's a miracle, guys. Job 9, verses 7 through 10, says, God is the one who commands the sun, and it does not rise, who seals up the stars, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea, who made the bear and Orion, the Pleiades, all these constellations, the chambers of the south, who does great things beyond searching out, marvelous things beyond number. People want to talk so confidently about the way the planets and stars spin, they themselves don't even know why it happens. They can just tell you that it happens. It's beyond searching out. 
After a while, you ask questions of one of these people, they say, well, that's just the way it works. Why do atoms hold together? We don't know, they just do. Why does gravity pull everything together? Well, that's what it does. It, it pulls large mass together and, it, and a smaller mass revolves around it. Why? I don't know, it's just what gravity does. That's not answering the question. Well, we can't know why. Science just tells us how. Ah, okay. Bible tells us why. That God is the one that does these things. If God made it, he can deal with it. Those who do not believe that God would or even could intervene like this have very little faith for God to intervene today. I found when I was reading for this, and even the guys that I like really disappointed me on this one. The ones that were willing to just affirm God did that. That's our kind of God. They then proceeded to give a lesson in their books about prayer, about the power of prayer and the need for faith. And God is the one who intervenes in our lives. The ones that spent pages and pages explaining why you don't have to take it this way if you don't believe in this stuff, they didn't give lessons about prayer. They gave lessons about learning to accept things the way they are and doing your best. Do you see what this does? If you can't take scripture at its face value, it undermines the lessons it's trying to teach. This passage is intended to awe you. Awesome. Our God is awesome. He strikes us with awe. All the nations around the world wondering why this day is taking so long. Somewhere, some birthday boy was very, very excited. But also to motivate us to pray that God will fight for you. Well, this was Joshua, Tyler. This was the people of Israel conquering the nation. I mean, that's, that's them. We're different. We, you know, we have to just kind of get along best we can. Really? That's not what Jesus said. Let's read my favorite verses of Scripture. You probably know them by heart by now. John 14, verses 12 through 14. This is during the Last Supper, the Upper Room Discourse. Jesus is saying, I'm about to go to my Father. When I go back to my Father, things are going to change. Because you're not just going to be praying to God, you're going to be praying to God in my name. And not only that, but I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to be with you. So there's going to be this completely transformed relationship between you and God. And what does that mean in a word? Access. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you. What does that mean? Whatever he's about to say is double true. <laughs> Why would he say that? Because probably he's about to say something that you wouldn't believe if he didn't say it to you. Whoever believes in me, is that you? Does it, did it say saints and prophets and holy men? It says, whoever believes in me. If you're going to take the whosoever of John 3.16, you better take the whosoever from this verse too. Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Think to yourself, what are some of the works Jesus did? He cleansed lepers. He walked on water. He calmed the storm. He caught an awful lot of fish. He cast demons out. Somebody touched his robe and they were healed just by touching his robe. Jesus said, if you believe in me, double true, if you believe, you will do those kinds of works. And this is where people want to come in and they say, well, no, not the miraculous works, just like the ministry works. That Jesus preached the gospel, but they rejected him. We get to preach the gospel and people get saved. That's not what it means. It sounds very sophisticated and scholarly, but in fact, if you read the book of John, any place you see that word erga, which is the plural form of the word ergon in Greek for work, okay? Erga means miraculous works. The rest of this passage, he's saying, if you don't believe me because of what I said, at least believe me because of my works. And he's talking about the miracles that he did. So he's talking about the miraculous ones. But not only that, he says, and greater works than these will he do. Just in case you were thinking, well, I, I, I never want to surpass Jesus. He goes, I was only here for three years. Y'all going to be here for millions of lifetimes. Why? How could God say, how could Jesus say something like that? He says, because I am going to the Father. Does the Father hear his son? Jesus said it when he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. Father, I know you always hear me. So if God always hears his son, and Jesus is going back to the Father and says, we get to ask the Father in his name. How often will God hear you? All the time. Some of you still don't want to say it because you're afraid. Well, let's look at verse 13. He says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. 
They'll say, aha, see, gotcha. That the Father will be glorified. He, what he's saying is, you can only do the things that are going to glorify God. And since we can't really know God's will, just take it easy. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I'm going to go to the Father, and you're going to pray in my name to my Father. And if you ask in my name, I'll give you whatever you want. All the works that I did, and even greater works than that. And when that happens, when you ask and receive, the Father will be glorified in the Son. Are we glorifying Joshua because the Son stood still? Or God because the Son stood still? That's what God is saying. It is my glory to answer your prayers. I just don't know. Well, for you, verse 14, he repeats it. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Well, there are other passages in the Bible title that qualify that. Yeah, I know. But let this one sink in first. Do you think the point of this passage is to teach you to be careful and walk very lightly about what you ask for? Jesus is saying, come in there and pray like Joshua. He says, son, stand still. There's probably somebody standing next to him like, I don't know about that one, Joshua. <laughs> Water's one thing, but that's, we'll all go flying off into space. Didn't you go to a physics class? <laughs> Listen, endurance is a Christian virtue. And yes, suffering is a part of life. But omnipotence is awaiting your prayers. Charles Spurgeon called prayer the slender nerve that moves the muscles of omnipotence. I think it was E.M. Bounds says that because prayer can do anything God can do, prayer is therefore omnipotent. That's blasphemous. Nope, Jesus said it. If the battle is spiritual and God is on your side, let me ask you a question. Why are you taking the fight lying down? Why does your heart melt like water when you consider the things you've got to do in your life? Satan is the one whose heart should be melting like water. Oh man, this one actually believes this stuff. She actually realizes that if she asks, she'll receive. She might start asking for stuff. Stop her from praying. Oh, she's kneeling down to pray. Quick, uh, have the power go out. Poke the baby, wake it up, make him cry. Have her boss send something nasty over the phone. Stop her from praying. Remind her what she needs to buy at the grocery store later today. Have her notice how dirty the floor is so she'll get up and vacuum instead of praying. That's just lifetime. No, that's spiritual warfare, friends. We want to think of spiritual warfare as like this great cosmic battle, Revelation chapter 12 in heaven. Yeah, it is that. But it also takes place in the mundane every day. The New Testament teaches us that supernatural prophetic activity would increase in the last days. Not decrease. Acts chapter 2. He's quoting from Joel. He says, this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. This spirit-filled speaking in tongues church that you see, this is what Joel prophesied. And what did Joel say? In the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters, no difference between male or female. Your old men and your young men, no difference because of age. Even your male and female servants, no difference because of class. All of my people will prophesy and dream dreams and do the works that God has laid out before them. You're living in the days where we should expect the most answer to prayer ever. Somebody say, wow, that's pretty cool. So I don't know if I agree with that. Well, friend, what does the scripture say? I, I, fine, challenge me. Search out the scriptures. Find where the Lord says something different. You won't. You'll find a few times where God says no or not yet, or this would be better. But the default position of the Christian is to step up and say, son, stand still. So what do we do? How do we do this? Let me give you five things you can write down if you're taking notes here. Here's the obvious one. Pray. Don't just say, yes, it would be a good idea to pray. Actually, get on your knees and pray. Turn your stinking phone off. Better yet, chuck it in the river and get down on your knees and start to pray. I don't know what to say. So? Just start to talk to God. Lord, this is what I need. Please give it to me. Amen. Start with that. Wait for a few minutes and then think of something else. I can't pray for three hours. Who cares? Start with five minutes. I challenge you to spend five minutes in prayer a day for the next week. Five whole minutes. No cheating now. Time yourself. Five minutes, what you will find is, wow, that went really fast. Five minutes, I can do more than five. Okay, fine, do 10. 
Let's see how you do. But at least do it. Joshua did not stop the sun himself. He was not some shaman, like, doing one of these things to get the sun to stop. He involved God. That's what prayer is, bringing God into the situation. How we do this? Here's four. Our four other things are how we pray. We pray boldly. Pray boldly. Joshua did not pray a small prayer here. Lord, I... You know, we know that you, you do everything and you're good and we know we're not, not anything special, Jesus. But God, if you would please, we're trying to finish the battle. And if everybody gets away, then we're just going to have to fight these. So if you want, I don't want to do anything that's opposed to your will. Uh, could you please maybe let the day last a little longer? But, you know, I, I, God, I'm, I, I, I shouldn't have asked that. I'm sorry. Just make me okay with the way things are. What is that mess? <laughs> your, your guardian angel is sitting there like... Jesus' his name. Is that how Jesus prayed? Pray like the Son of God would pray, because that's whose name you're praying in. You have no right to pray on your own. You have his right. So pray boldly. Ask for all God's power to help. Stop the sun, God. I bet the Lord almost like, like, a, like a good dad just kind of chuckled. He's like, this guy, man. All right, here you go. Just let me know when you're done. Bold prayers. Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? He prayed, number two, or three, however you're counting, specifically. He did not speak vaguely. Lord, please do something. There's nothing wrong with that prayer, but it's not the best prayer. Lord, stop the sun, stop the moon, give us more daylight so we can finish the battle. That's like the manliest prayer of all time, isn't it, by the way? Oh, man, they're going to get away. Lord, stop the sun so that they can never get away from us. Never mind they had just marched all through the night. They were fighting for their promised land. He didn't speak vaguely. He knew what he wanted and asked. Here's what I'll tell you. If you know what your situation needs, ask for that. Specifically, Lord God, my daughter has a drug problem. Please help her come to her senses and leave that stuff behind. There you go. When I was in school, man, this is not something I grew up with in Calvary Chapel, but I, I went to a Baptist high school, college and seminary, loved it, nothing bad to say, but I was introduced to something I never heard of called the unspoken prayer. <laughs> and kids would be like, you know, any prayer requests today? I have four unspokens. <laughs> and they'd be like writing them down on the board. And it's, hey, I was in a Christian school. It's great that they were taking requests, but like, okay, you know, Bobby's thumb and Julie's stomach and 11 unspokens. Who wants to pray for these? I remember being like, what is that all about? Now, is there a time where maybe you, you shouldn't say? Yeah, sure. But it's much better to pray specifically. There are some folks in this church, let me tell you, that set an example to the rest of us by not trying to protect what's going on in their family. Like, she's sick. Here's what she's got. Here's what she needs. Please pray for us. The Lord's like, that's what I'm talking about. Ask specifically. If you don't know what you need specifically, think to yourself, what? would make this situation better and glorify God. Pray for that. If the Lord doesn't want that, he'll let you know. Number four, pray publicly. Joshua did not hide his request. Like, hey, God, I don't want to embarrass you. But if maybe you could, like, stop the sun or something like that. What do you think of that? Oh, Lord, please, please help us. So anyway, about the sun. I don't, I don't want them to get disappointed if this doesn't happen. Oh, that's what we do when we pray for the sick, don't we? We want to pray. I don't want them to get upset if this doesn't happen. So in private, Lord, rebuke that cancer in Jesus' name. But when we're with them, Lord, just whatever you want, Lord. I understand the heart behind that. But guys, if I ever ask you to come with me and pray for the sick, don't pray like that. Pray publicly and out loud so that everybody can hear and say, Amen. Yes, Lord. Do you think there might have been a little ripple running through the ranks? Joshua prayed for the sun to stop. There go the hailstones. Vroom, 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 vroom. You know what would make this perfect, Lord, if this lasted two days? <laughs> Publicly, for all to hear. And number five, he prayed obediently. Joshua did not pray lazy. God, you finish this up. He says, God, we're going to keep on doing exactly what we're supposed to do. Here's what we need to help us. It's your plan. It's your will. You've already said it. Here's what we need. We'll continue to do what we're supposed to do. But here's our request to you. If you are saying, I'm going to pray because you are neglecting to do what you know you ought to do, well, that's a problem. 
Lord, help her to come to her senses. Maybe God says, okay, give her a call and I'll use you to help her come to her senses. Oh no, none of that. Really? None of that? No, just do it. Just send somebody. Oh, that next door neighbor of mine. God, please send a good Christian into his life. God goes, I did. It's you. Oh, but I said something nasty the other day that I shouldn't have. They won't want to hear from me. He's like, yeah, you're right. Go apologize. I'm not apologizing to him. He'll throw it back in my face. Okay, then you get the chance to demonstrate the forgiveness that he never received. And he's going to be stomping around his backyard all day saying, why, did, I want, why didn't he just fight with me? So, so unmanly and so unbecoming. It's ridiculous. And he's going to mock you for it. But it's going to be eating his soul alive. And the next time you see him and you show love to him again, he's going to be like, what is this? You tell me right now what's going on. What are you trying to do? What's your angle? What's your game? And the Lord's working on him. Finish your part of the battle. Step out into God's plan. Pray against the opposition and the sun will stand still. Jesus said in Matthew 17, 20, if you have faith, faith the size of a mustard seed, little one, you can say to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea and it will be done. To date, no one has had that much faith yet. I would like to be the first. I'm having trouble imagining a circumstance where that would be edifying, but it still would be pretty awesome, wouldn't it? Lord, have this mountain be cast into the sea. Perhaps his, Israel's most hesitant advance led to their greatest victory because God fought for them, and that sparked faith in Joshua. And he asked for more, and God said, yes! He was sick and tired of 40 years of grumbling and wandering and having to judge his own people. It was now I can pour out my wrath on the people who actually deserve it. Let's finish this chapter out, 16 through 43. It's a long section, but let's go. These five kings fled and hid themselves in the cave at Makedah. And it was told to Joshua, the five kings have been found hidden in the cave at Makedah. And Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. Probably not how they thought that would go. But do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies. Attack their rear guard. Do not let them enter their cities, for the Lord your God has given them into your hand. When Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out, and when the remnant that remained of them had entered into the fortified cities, then all the people returned safe to Joshua in the camp at Makedah. Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. Then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so and brought those five kings out to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Yarmouth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. And when they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. And they came near and put their feet on their necks. Very symbolic gesture, right? And Joshua said to them, do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous. For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight, using their conquered kings as an object lesson for his men. And afterward, Joshua struck them and put them to death, and he hanged them on five trees, and they hung on the trees until evening. But at the time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves, and they set large stones against the mouth of the cave, which remained to this very day. As for Makedah, Joshua captured it on that day and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining. And he did to the king of Makedah just as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Makedah to Libna and fought against Libna. And the Lord gave it also and its king into the hand of Israel. And he struck it with the edge of the sword and every person in it. He left none remaining in it. And he did to its king as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Libna to Lachish and laid siege to it and fought against it. And the Lord gave Lachish into the hand of Israel, and he captured it on the second day and struck it with the edge of the sword and every person in it as he had done to Libna. Then Haram king of Gezer came up to help Lachish, and Joshua struck him and his people until he left none remaining. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Lachish to Eglon, and they laid siege to it and fought against it. And they captured it on that day and struck it with the edge of the sword. And he devoted every person in it to destruction that day as he had done to Lachish. Then Joshua and all Israel with him went up from Eglon to Hebron, and they fought against it and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and its king and its towns and every person in it. He left none remaining as he had done to Eglon and devoted it to destruction and every person in it. 
Then Joshua and all Israel with him turned back to Debir and fought against it and captured it with its king and all its towns. And they struck them with the edge of the sword and devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining, just as he had done to Hebron and to Libna and its king. So he did to Debir and to its king. So Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country and the Negev and the lowland and the slopes and all their kings. He left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. And Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza and all the country of Goshen as far as Gibeon. And Joshua captured all these kings in their land at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. So that's the narrative of the campaign. From this point on, no more mess ups. It's going to be victory after victory for Joshua. No more recorded miracles either, but victory. They're hiding in the cave. He blocks them in until they're done. That ceremonial putting their feet on their necks to symbolize total victory before they were killed and hanged on a tree. Remember Deuteronomy 21 tells us that cursed is every man who hangs on a tree. So they had to bury them. That's why they took Jesus down off the cross when they did. Sweeps through the region, laying waste to these cities that opposed them. This is where he established the southern border of Israel, taking possession of some really key cities. So Kadesh Barnea is where they had first failed to enter the promised land. Uh, you know, Gaza was one of the Philistine cities. The scholars are split on whether or not the Philistines had even arrived in Israel at this point. They were immigrants from across the sea. Uh, Hebron would be a very important city. And this is when they took it. Not Jerusalem, you notice. The king of this attack was from Jerusalem. It will be David that conquers Jerusalem. Here's how we finish up. God desires total victory for you. We can convince ourselves, well, God wants me to have a few places of suffering and sin and problems in my life. Where do you get that from scripture? How easy it is to strike a truce with the enemy, stop fighting and call it Christian virtue instead of what it is, a defeat for your family, your sanctification, the sins that you're struggling with, your, even your success in life. God desires you to be blessed. Now, some people want to take that to an extreme, but it's still true. Your ministry, it's victory after victory. Jesus told Peter in Matthew 16, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You know what I love about that passage, right? The gates are defense. You're the one attacking the city. Satan closed the gates against you. I had a professor in college that would tell us at the end of every class, he'd read that verse and he'd say, now get out there and kick some gate. <laughs> get out there, find the places where Satan has set up a stronghold, march in with the power of the Holy Ghost, knock that gate down, lay waste to the city and say, this place belongs to Jesus now. Yeah. It is not presumption to believe and strive for total victory in your promised land. Of course you seek God's will first. Maybe you need to get some priorities adjusted. And I do not promise that you'll never experience a fight. This was still a fight. You're still going to get tired. You're still going to get wounded. You're still going to have setbacks. You're going to have long sieges. That's part of it. But victory is yours, friend. For Romans 8.37 says we are more than what? Conquerors. Not just soldiers. Not just you get a participation trophy or a finisher's medal. Conquerors in Christ Jesus. Identify that the struggle is supernatural and then call for supernatural intervention from your almighty God. If we can become spiritual people who will stop acting according to the flesh and thinking according to the flesh, then in Christ Jesus, we will become unstoppable.